Amen. Exodus 17 is be a good place to start if uh, you have your Bibles and you want to open your Bibles and look. So we have been the last several weeks looking at some of the different characters through the Scripture. So we pretty much started at Genesis 1-1 looking at Adam. And we're just going to chronologically go through the entire Bible. There's about 50-some different characters, both males and females, that we're going to look at and just kind of look at um, asking three questions about all, th- all, all these characters characters that we're going to look at. The three questions as we've been looking at every week, who were they? Why do we know them? And what lessons do they teach us? And so every week we're just coming in here and looking because not only do we understand that God's word um, has application and relevance to our lives today, but we also know that there are people, examples that we have in God's word that are examples for you and I. So when you and I find ourselves in a spot and we are tempted to think, poor pitiful me, I'm the only person that's ever done this, I'm the only person's ever dealt with this and I'm the only person going through it, you open up the Bible and you can find somebody um, that is facing the same challenges that you. They might have different names and they might have different faces and the circumstances might be a touch different but at the same, at the end of the day, there are numerous amount of people that we find in Scripture that go through the same sorts of challenges, struggles, and opposition that we do and we have them in Scripture as an example of how God deals with them, how they then respond to God, and that we can learn from them, good or bad, on how we can then live out and pursue faithfulness for God. So this evening, we've been walking through several of them, and we get to the character of Joshua. So three questions, who was he? Why do we know him? And then what lessons does he teach us? So when we think about the first question, we're just asking the question. Who is his dad? Who is his mom? Who is he married to? Do we know who, who, he, who his children were? Do we know how many children we had? Do we know how long he lived? Just kind of some biographical, factual data. And then we will look at, as far as why do we know him, about things that he did with his life. So when it comes to Joshua, do what do we know about Joshua? Regarding who his dad was, who his mom was. Wife, children, what do we know about Joshua? Anything? Not on that aspect. Not on that aspect. Son of none. Son of none, okay. <laughs> it's good. That's, that's, that's got to be a starting point. All right, where do you find that at? Okay, you just know it, okay? So you find that, you find it in multiple places, but one of the places you'll find it is in First Chronicles, which is to the right of Exodus. But you go to First Chronicles chapter 7 and uh, verse 27, it's giving the genealogy of the tribe of Ephraim. And as it's giving the genealogy of the tribe of Ephraim, it gets down there and it says, you know, this was the dad, this was the boy, this was the grandson. It goes all throughout the list and it gets down to a man by the name of Nun in you in, and it says he had a multiple children, and one of the names of the children was Joshua. You will also find in other places where his name is Hosea, Hosea, H O S H E A. You'll find this in Numbers where it talks about Hosea, the son of Nun. It's the same way, Joshua, Hosea, the same name there. But yes, so we understand he was the son of Nun. Do we have any indication about who his mom was? No, we do not. Do we have any indication about him being married? No, we do not. (laughs) Do we have any indication about him having children? No, we do not. In fact, you go back to Second Chronicles, or First Chronicles, sorry, First Chronicles chapter 7, and when, it, when it's giving the genealogy and it's laid down there, you get to Nun, and then you get to Joshua, and then it doesn't say anything else about Joshua's children or Joshua's descendants. You go to Joshua chapter 24, which the book of Joshua in the Old Testament is all about who? Joshua, right? And his leadership in the conquest of the promised land. So even when you get towards the end and you're in Joshua 22, 23, 24, Joshua will make a statement in in Joshua 24, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He will say that, but he doesn't then describe what his household is 
is qualified as. And then you get to Joshua 24 when it talks about him dying. It talks about him passing away and they is the terminology that's used in my English translation. And they is referring to the people around him. They buried Joshua. There's no indication that a, a spouse or children buried Joshua. When you think back to the life of Abraham, it talks about when Abraham died that his children buried him. Right? And so you will get some examples in other places in Scripture when somebody died. Here's who took care of the body. When Moses died, who took care of the body? God. God. That's right. Okay? So you have this idea that, you know, usually the Bible gives us some indication. But when it comes to Joshua, we know he's the son of Nun. We really don't know anything about Nun beyond that. And we know he's in the tribe of Ephraim. That's what it says in 1 Chronicles chapter 7. But beyond that, we don't know if he was or was not married. We don't know if he did or did not have children. We really don't have any more biographical data than that. Which I find to be very interesting in the fact that you have a person that was so influential in the life of the Jewish people in leading them out of the wilderness to the conquest of the promised land which they now have as what is modern day Israel. And you have a person that is so influential in that generation has a whole Old Testament book named after him, and yet we don't even know if the man was married or not. I just find that to be interesting. So, it must not be important, which is, you know, that's something, that's right, So that's something that a lot of times we, as humans, we struggle with. Because we come to the Bible and we say, I've got this question, this question, and this question, and I expect God's Word to answer these questions. And when they don't, then we get aggravated, well, God's Word is deficient, or God's Word is lacking. And one of the things we have to always remind ourselves is God does not give us every answer that we may have in His Word. But He does give us every answer that we need to be obedient and faithful to Him. So you're right, Miss Carol. If the fact that information isn't in there, it could be that that's not the focus of the story. The focus of the story of Joshua is not on his wife, his garden, how smart his kids were, how cute his five-year-old daughter was at kindergarten graduation. Maybe some of that stuff is not the point. The point is how God used him, right? So maybe that's the reason why. All right. So when we think about who he was, there's just not a lot of information that's there that we find in Scripture. You may find um, something on the interweb that tells you more information. Just be careful because whatever more information you find, they had to find it from someplace outside of the Bible. So just be aware. All right. So then we go to the question number two. Why do we know Joshua. Why do we know the name? Now, before you jump to the book of Joshua, think about all the way there at the very beginning. Or maybe, let's put it this way, where is the first time we see Joshua appear in Scripture? Anybody know? Exodus what? That's right. Okay. So that's why I said if you want to go ahead and turn there. Because Exodus 17 is really the first place we see him appear. And this is long before he takes over the the corner office, if you will, and the the tower and being the CEO of um, the company of Israel. So... The first place you see Joshua appear is in chapter 17. So I've got listed down here quite a few um, <coughs> different descriptions that we may use for Joshua when we think about why do we know him. First place he shows up, Exodus 17 and in verse 9. First time we see Joshua appear is when he is picked by Moses to go into battle against who? The Amalekites, right? So they're they're on their way and they're uh, leaving um, the Sinai wilderness. No, they're not to the Sinai wilderness yet. They're on their way down to the Sinai wilderness. And the Amalekites come out and uh, they want to have a big old exaggerated pillow fight. And uh, Moses says, not so much. And has Joshua picking out some soldiers. And Joshua and the, Amalek- or Joshua and the uh, Israelites go down and they're battling the Amalekites. Remember this story? And so... While they're down there in the valley and they're fighting, Moses says, me and Aaron and some other guys will go up on top of the mountain on the ridge where we can look down over the battle. And you see this in uh, Exodus 17. So when they're down there, Joshua's down there with the other Israelites and they're battling against the Amalekites. As long as Moses would keep his hands up, 
the Israelites would be winning. As long as he, as soon as he'd drop his hands down, the Israelites would start losing. I don't know how you figure this out. I kind of, I kind of wonder. I thought someone else that love to be there watching. Like, how did, how did you figure this out? I mean, why did you have your hands up to begin with? I mean, like, were you waving at them? Were you going high? Were you kind of giving them directions and then you dropped your hands? I mean, how did you, did you start telling by how many people were dying? I mean, how do you know you started losing? God. God, okay, that's, that's a possibility. So what happened then is then Moses held his hands up and he held his hands up and he held his hands up and his hands got tired. And then it tells about Aaron and there was another guy. Her, her was there, so they started holding their hands up. They got tired of holding his hands up, so they get rocks and they prop his hands up on rocks. And uh, there he's got his hands propped up on rocks with Aaron and her holding them up until Joshua and the other Israelites defeat the Amalekites. So the first time we see Joshua show up on the scene is he is described as a soldier. Fast forward from there to Exodus chapter 24, and we see another description of Joshua. 24 and verse 13 says, So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. So they're there at the base of Sinai and they are going up to receive the law, receive the commandments from God and not only does Moses go up but then Joshua is then going up with him. So we see Joshua described as here in my translation it says an assistant. Go keep going to chapter 32. <coughs> chapter 32 Moses is up on the mountain. God has now given him the Ten Commandments on how many tablets? Two tablets, right? So he's got two tablets. And uh, Charleston Heston's, his were about yay big and about yay wide, right, of, of rock. Two tablets like that. And so he's coming down, and God had already said, go down there, your people are broke out, they're sinning against me. And so Moses goes down there to investigate what God has been talking about. And you get to chapter 32, and verse 17, it says, When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is, no, there is noise of war in the camp. So Joshua is not all the way up in the mountain or on the top of the mountain where Moses was at. So he was somewhere in between kind of serving as a lookout. He was there. So he was not down there when the people started doing idol worship. He was somewhere um, in the in-between area kind of listening to what is going on. So he's described as a soldier. He's described as an assistant. Um, I call him there in chapter 32 um, as a more of a lookout. Um, kind of sitting there waiting for Moses, waiting for God to finish speaking to Moses. Then you get to chapter 33, and there's another job, another word that he's described. And this is chapter 33 and verse 11. You had the camp of the Israelites, and outside of the main camp, they had set up a tent of meeting. And the idea was, is that Moses would go out there, and that is where he would have conversation with God. And kind of a, a more of a separated place, if you will. So it says in chapter 33 and verse 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So the idea was is that you had this tent, and the make sure that nobody was going in there and defiling it or profaning it or misusing it. There was a guard set up at the tent. That is what Joshua did. So you can imagine him being out there and uh, Joshua's guarding the tent, making sure nobody messes with it, nobody misuses it. Here comes Moses, opens the door, oh, well, flat, opens the tent flat for Moses. Moses goes in, Joshua steps out, Moses has a conversation with God. Whatever that conversation is, out comes Moses, and there is Joshua then stationed, what I describe as a tent sitter, but he that was his job. His job was to guard the things of God, to guard that relationship, to guard that holiness. So you can just imagine that the people are there, and they know that Moses went in the tent. You can just imagine the people are like, well, let's go eavesdrop. Let's go, let's go hear what is being said. You get to that season where you have your children, and you're on the phone, and you get all these little children around you, and you get off the phone, and the children are like, 
Who were you talking to, Daddy? What were they talking about? And they want to know all about what's going on because they're nosy, 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 nosy. I just tell them every time. I was talking to the president. And they'll say, the president? And I'll say, yeah. And they'll say, the president of what? And I'll say, the president of none of your business. That's who I was talking to. And so they just know that when they ask me, and they say, Daddy, who are you talking to? I'll say, the president. And they just give me that look like, grumble, 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 growl, growl, growl. You're supposed to tell us. No, I am not supposed to tell you who I'm talking to. You're being nosy. Right? Alright? So you can just imagine when Moses goes to the tent, there's probably a few people outside the tent that are like, we'd like to hear what's going on in there. We'd like to hear what's being said. So they might be tempted to go up there and put their ear against the tent fabric, you know? You know how you used to do this with the door? You know how you go up there and you can listen to what's going on? Don't act all sanctimonious on me, Granny. I know. You probably heard. But you would go in there and you would listen. You would listen to that kind of stuff. So you can just imagine the people that would be gathered up outside the tent wanting to hear what was God just was saying to Moses in the tent. So you can just imagine Joshua's outside going, shoot, get out of here. That's a private conversation that you're not supposed to be a part of. Get on. So Joshua is described as a soldier, and assistant. He's a lookout. He's a, a tent sitter, if you will. Now turn farther to the right to Numbers. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. If you get to Deuteronomy, you've gone too far. So there's another description of Joshua in Numbers. Numbers chapter 13. In Numbers 13... It's been 40, it's been, uh, not 40 years, the 40 years is coming. They've made their way, left Mount Sinai. Now they've headed up north, northeast. They circled around northwest. They're now what, if you look on a map, that'd be on the southeasterly corner of what is modern day Israel. Posed to go into the promised land, take possession of the promised land. They get there. Moses decides he's going to send in some spies to spy out the land. And how many spies does he send in? Twelve. Twelve. He's, Joshua sends in two to Jericho. But at this time, he sends in twelve, right? Now, how many days do the spies spend in the promised land? 40 days. There's a 40-day theme you'll see all throughout the Bible. Alright? Um, after 40 days, here comes the 12 spies. Remember? And out of those 12 spies, when Moses picked them, one of the spies that was chosen, it talks about in, talks about in Numbers chapter 13, and verse 8, it says, la, 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 la. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun. Now I told you that sometimes you'll see that Hosea being used interchangeable. It's the same person talking about Joshua, okay? So Joshua's then was picked as one of the twelve spies to go into the promised land. Well, they go in there, they spend 40 days, they come back out. Now you're in Numbers chapter 14. And if you remember the story, they come back out and they gather up all the Hebrew people. They're like, okay, give us a report of what you saw. And 10 out of the 12 said, can't do it, no way, we need to run. And you have Joshua and who? Caleb. Caleb. So Joshua and Caleb, they're like, no, it's going to take some work. But God can do it. So in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 6, talks about Moses. How, uh, let's just look at verse 5. Numbers 14 and verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jethunah, who were among those who had spied out the way and tore their clothes, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights um, in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. So you see Joshua is not just one of the spies, but he is always also one of the people that pled with the entire congregation of the nation of Israel to not rebel against God, to go in and take the promised land that God had promised them, that God had told them to do. So, not only is he a spy, but he's also a person pleading for obedience before God. Keep going to your right, to Numbers chapter 27. There's another description about Joshua and why do we know this guy named Joshua? Why why does he matter? Why is he important? Numbers chapter 27. I 
after they rebelled in Numbers 14, God said, okay, so you're going to go out and you're going to wander through the wilderness for how many years? 40. You're going to go through the wilderness for 40 years. And while you're going through the wilderness, who's going to die? Everybody. That entire generation, right? That entire generation that rebelled against God. Everybody from 20 years old and upward. The only people that aren't going to die in the wilderness are two people. And that will be Joshua and Caleb. Aaron dies. He goes up on Mount Hamor, Mount Hermon, and he dies. And then right before they come into the promised land, Moses dies. So out of that entire generation, the only two people that then crossed the Jordan that were alive in Numbers 14 is Caleb and Joshua. And then everybody else that was under the age of 20 years old. So they uh, get there after that whole generation has died out. Okay, so they've been wandering through the wilderness. Do what, man? They didn't believe. Because they didn't trust in God. And they rebelled against God. Yes, ma'am. But now they've wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. So now they're coming back. About done with their 40 year wandering. And they're coming back. And God says, okay, I'm getting ready to take you out of the picture, Moses. But can you imagine? You've got this entire generation. Okay? And if they were 19 years old. And now they've been wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. So now you're at what? 59 years old? So you have this whole generation that's all really known is wilderness wandering. All right, All they've ever known is just following Moses. You have a whole generation and the only leader they've ever known is Moses. So now here comes the question is who is going to succeed Moses? Who is going to follow after Moses? It is a humongous question that the people are faced with. Who is going to be the successor of Moses? Moses is the only person they've ever had. You will find a place in Isaiah. and Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is talking about the king. I don't want to say it's not Hezekiah, but it's another king, Uzziah. In the year that Uzziah died. And it references that Uzziah had reigned for 56 Years, So it's this idea that you had from the time you were born to all the way now, he's the only king you had ever known. So it's a huge deal when you have a change in leadership. Right now, right down there at Trinity, Lane Buckley, the pastor that's been down there for 35, 38 years, is retiring next month. There's only two people in that church that were there before he came. Everyone else came after he's been there. And there are people there, there are adults there that were children whenever Lane was the pastor. They have now grown up in adulthood. They have had now had children and their children are now in middle school and high school and the only pastor that these people have known is Lane. So this is a huge thing for a church to go through a transition, which is why we should be praying for them during this transition because it's a huge thing, not just because you have a different person taking over the leadership, but because of what a big shift this represents. So you get to numbers, and as they're coming in, you can just imagine the people, and they're like, well, Moses is getting ready to go off the scene. Who's going to follow up after Moses? And this is how my imagination works. I can just imagine there are people that are starting to uh, guess, well, well, maybe I should politic, and maybe I should put my name in. Maybe I should, turn, you know, polish up my recipe. Maybe maybe I should uh, start, you know, doing a little bit extra. Maybe they're, they're trying to vie for that position. So what does God do in Numbers chapter 27? As God is saying to Moses, this is what's going to happen. Verse 15, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go up before them and come in before them who shall lead them out and bring them into the congregation of the Lord that they may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So Moses says, God, would you please pick the person that will be my successor? Verse 18, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom the Spirit, whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar. Remembers that's Aaron's son. Um, different spelling than Moses' son. Eleazar, the priest, and all the congregation. You shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with the sum, with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. So that's what happens. So it's not that Joshua is chosen by Moses. He wasn't the the, the best brown nose or the teacher's pet or the the favorite of Moses. He he was chosen by God to succeed after Moses left the scene. Another place. 
Deuteronomy. Keep going. So you got Numbers, and then you get to Deuteronomy. Keep going all the way down to Deuteronomy 34. If you get to Joshua, you've gone too far. There are 34 chapters in Deuteronomy. So get down there to uh, chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, and it gives us a description of this guy named Joshua. So he was a soldier, he was an assistant, he was a lookout, he was a tent sitter, a spy, a pleader chosen by God. And then it says in verse 9 of chapter 34, Deuteronomy, it says in Joshua, the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom for Moses had laid his hands on him so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face none like him for all the signs and the wonders of the Lord sent to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to all his land for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of, the, of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel so it says that Moses then hands the reins off to Joshua and then Joshua steps into there. So you leave from Deuteronomy 34 and now you get into Joshua chapter 1 and it says in chapter 1 and verse 1 after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses my servant is dead. Now therefore arise go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I'm giving to them to the people of Israel. So you see this transition in leadership and so why do we know who Joshua was? It's because not just that he was the assistant of Moses, but he was then chosen by God and then as soon as Moses is off the scene God says, alright Joshua let's go. Get him up. Get him across the Jordan. Let's go. It's battle time. Right? That's why we know who Joshua is. Like you said Miss Carol, we don't, we don't know who Joshua is because who he's married to. Because his kids. We know Joshua because of how he was used in the storyline of God's plan for the Israelite people. Right? So it's, it's how God then used Joshua. Now, then you get to the book of Joshua. And you got 24 chapters of just rock'em sock'em time going on as they're going in there and they're conquering and they're dividing it out and had success and they had failures and we could spend two or three nights talking about all the stories in Joshua out of the book of Joshua. But that just kind of gives us an overview of why do we know about him. What are some other ideas that you may have as far as stories that you might think of or that you might want to share about why do we know about Joshua? Jericho? All right. That's the famous one. All kids were. That's the famous one. That's right. Jericho. That's right. That's right. Okay. So we know him because of Jericho. All right. What's another reason why we may know Joshua? He was the one who divided up all of Israel. Yes. All the tribes. That's right. He's also the one that asked or called for the sun to stand still. Remember that? When they're fighting. And uh, he realized he doesn't have enough daylight to finish the whooping that he's got, that he's trying to give out to some of these ites. And uh, so he calls out and says, stand still. And it says that time, like, the sun stood still. And there have been a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of ink put on paper trying to scientifically explain how that handled, how that took place. Did the sun stop? Did the earth stop rotating? All of these things are trying to scientifically explain what happened. When the Bible tells us, God God gave him more time. God said, alright, everything's going to stop and keep whooping. Keep whooping, Joshua. Keep, keep doing what you need to do. I mean, but so, but there's been so many people that have tried to give us an explanation because people want to know, well, how and why? Well, because it was God, it's God's will and it was God's design. And if God can make the sun, then God can have the sun do whatever He wants to do. And if God can make the earth and put the earth in rotation, then God can do whatever He wants to do with the earth. I mean, God is, He's that kind of God. He's got some kind of manners. So, I mean, we, uh, yeah. What are the reasons why we know? Who Joshua was. His leadership. His leadership. Okay. And when you break it down, like all the things you said earlier, like <laughs> an assistant, he was guarding. Like my mind goes, what was God doing to prepare him then for that? Right. Yeah. 
Okay? Well, Joshua must have been a man that he did what God asked him to do. Yes. That's why he could use Joshua. Yes. I mean, some people just want to do what God said. Yes. Joshua didn't do Yes. Okay, so answer answered the question, who was he? We've answered the question partially about why do we know him. What lessons does Joshua teach us today? To what? That he obeys God. That he obeys God. So, so the first one I wrote down was out of Joshua chapter 1. And the way I titled this was Leaders Are Led. So one of the lessons that I glean from the, from the life of Joshua, from the character of Joshua, is that leaders are led. Now let me explain to you where, I, where I'm going with this. So you get to Joshua chapter 1. Verse 1 all the way down through verse 9 is God's commissioning of Joshua. Saying, Joshua, this is what I want you to do. You will see the language. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, be strong and courageous. Verse 9, be strong and courageous. Then you get down to verse 18. Be strong and courageous. So God is giving Joshua, hey, this is what I want you to do. So verse 1 down through verse 9 is commissioning where God is saying, Joshua, this is what I want you to do. And then in verse 10, it says, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over the Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you to possess. We don't have time tonight. But then if you follow the story, out. Remember, they're all on the east side of the Jordan River. They're trying to go west into modern day Israel. The problem is, is that the river is at flood stage. It's out of its banks. How are you going to ford or get across a river at this season and in this place and in these kind of conditions? So, what Joshua does, and if you go back and read it, it's to me it's fascinating. God doesn't say to all the people, hear ye, hear ye, this is what I want you to do. He doesn't do that. Very rarely do you see God make a proclamation to an entire mass of people. The normal thing that God does in Scripture is He tells one person and then has that one person then lead a group of people. So you get later on in Joshua and Joshua goes around and says, get ready, make yourself ready. In three days, we're going across the Jordan. You just imagine all the people like, ha ha, see the new guy. He's kind of the rookie. He doesn't really understand yet. He'll understand. Ha ha. And then Joshua says, take this Ark of the Covenant. And he has the priest. And he says, walk towards the water. And he's got everybody lined up and saying, follow them. And you can just imagine the people are like, this guy's dumb. Why in the world is he now our leader? We've made a mistake. We would like a recap. I mean, you can just imagine all the things as Joshua has said. This is what I want you to do. He has them walk. And it says, oh, it says, as soon as the priest's foot touched the brink of the water, the waters went. Remember this? And then the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant into the middle of the riverbed. And as long as they stood in the middle of the riverbed of the Ark of the Covenant, everybody passed over. And then as soon as everybody passed over, then the priests came back up. And as soon as the last priest, as soon as the last priest heel left out of that riverbed, the waters go right back. Now, here's where I'm going with this. Leaders are led. If I'm Joshua, I'm going to think we need to form a committee. We need to have a study group. We need to get some people together and let's take a vote. Let's have a conversation how we need to go about this. No, Joshua had just got told by God, you listen to me. You do what I tell you to do. And whatever I tell you to do, that's what you tell them to do. And then that is what you lead them to do. So it matters who is leading the leaders. Or who the leaders are being led by. That is phenomenally important. It, you might have a favorite TV or radio preacher that you like listening to. That person is being led by somebody. You need to know who that person is being led by. If any of you come up 
and you say, well, Spence, we want to listen to who you're listening to. I'm more than happy to pull out my phone and show you the podcast and lead you through and saying, here's who I'm listening to. Here's who I'm paying attention to. You say, I want to know who you're reading. I'm more than happy to take you down the study and say, this is what I'm reading. And this is the kind of things that I'm ingesting. Why? Because it matters what I'm listening to. And it matters who I am listening to and what I am listening to because all leaders are led. Which is why it is so dangerous when you take a 30 second soundbite by somebody and you just go off and listen to that when you have no idea the influence that people are coming in. And we've got to, for me it's a lesson, you get to chapter 1 and verse 9, God says... Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then in verse 10, Joshua takes off and says, All right, God told me what to do. Go straight and does it. Because leaders are led. And it matters who is leading the leaders. He was. He was. But you can just imagine when he goes up to the priest and he says, All right, guys, you're supposed to take the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God, and you're supposed to just take off, walk into the river. And the priests are like, you're dumb. We can't do that. No. And this thing doesn't float. I mean, this thing's made out of acacia wood, overlaid with gold. This thing's not going to be like a ferry that we're going to just float this thing across. I mean, it was just, it looked ridiculous. Yeah, you would think. The problem, though, is, Miss Carol, is you see over and over where the people change their mind. Or they got in a point, they're like, ah, oh, well, you know, we, we can trust God up to this point, but after this, nah, now nah, we're, we're done. We've got to keep reminding ourselves who's in charge. So I keep telling myself God's in control. Yes. Yes. But Satan is always there to try to challenge us. For our faith to be strengthened. That's right. That's right. That's good. Now. Yes. Yes. So there's another lesson. This is out of Joshua chapter 6. So this goes to what Mark was talking about, Jericho. Now, they get across the river. They get there in where they where they, where's they, where they stop at? Gig, 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 Gilgal? No, what'd you say? Where they they where they get where they get? Uh, oh my gracious! I had a brain fart. The first place they stopped, Gilgal. Gilgal, you're right. I'm so sorry. Okay, so they stopped at Gilgal. Everybody that wasn't circumcised, they didn't be circumcised, got circumcised. They deserve the Passover right there, okay? So the first, the first little place on the map is Jericho, okay? So, you're a military leader, and you're thinking, okay, so we got to go in there and conquer Jericho. So the kind of a thing you'll notice when you first walk up to Jericho is Jericho's got some walls, okay? They, they like, we, you know, we're kind of an exclusive kind of people. we got our own little, you know, homeowners association. We don't let just anybody come in. And so they got these walls. And there's been all kinds of commentaries and Bible scholars talk about these kind of walls and how big these were. Whatever the taste was, however wide, however tall, however thick, however hardened they were, they were still a wall that you had to overcome. So if you're a military leader, you've got three options when it comes to conquering Jericho. Either you've got to go over the wall to get to the people, right? you got to go under the wall to get to the people, or you got to go through the wall to get to the people. So if you're Jer- so if you're Joshua, you're trying to think ahead. You're like, alright God, what do you want us to do? Are we supposed to go over? Are we supposed to go under? Are we supposed to go through? God, you know, do I need to start building siege works to go through the wall? Do I need to start building ladders to go over the wall? Or do I need to find some very um, good diggers, some gophers in amongst us to start going underneath the wall. So you can just imagine Joshua is having all these questions. You can just imagine all the men, okay, as they've been healing from their recent procedure of circumcision, they can know Jericho's coming. So you can just imagine all the guys sitting around drinking coffee, you know, and all they're, they're all visiting. Like some of the people that sit at the beds 
or like especially if you go to Meeker, the, the, the gas station on the south side of the main intersection, there's two benches out in front, and there's like five or six gentlemen that will line up, and they're out there drinking coffee, and they're out there solving the problems and keeping tabs on the community, right? Alright, so you can just imagine all of these people are sitting around in Gilgal thinking, what are we going to do? How's, how, how are we going to get past Jericho? How are we going to defeat Jericho? So, Joshua chapter 5, 6. Joshua chapter 6. You go to chapter 5, Joshua's outside the walls. He sees the commander of the Lord's army. I think that is a manifestation of Jesus. Um, This is my opinion. Then you get to chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Joshua. Now, here is the second lesson that this teaches me. Maybe it has some application to you, but the way it reaches out to me is it reminds me that only one voice matters. You and I are overwhelmed with a choir of voices trying to tell us what we should do, what we ought to do, and what would be the best thing for us if we would do that. We are surrounded by voices on a continual basis, overwhelming us with information, influence, constantly trying to get our attention, constantly trying to distract us and dissuade us. And sometimes, even in the church, you can have a variety of voices, and they are Nice voices, kind voices, wise voices, experienced voices, well-intended voices. But at the end of the day, there's only one voice that matters. And who's that? That's God's voice. What is God saying to do? So Moses, not Moses, Joshua. Joshua is sitting there and he's thinking to himself, over, under, through, over, under, through. Over, under, through, and God's like, scratch that. Okay? God says, here's what I want you to do. Six days, you're going to get all the people, and you're going to walk around the city once, and then you're going to go back to camp. Okay? And remember, if you go back in the story and read this, God does not download this information to all the people. He tells Joshua, and then Joshua is then tasked with telling the people. Alright? The new guy, the rookie leader, alright? The, 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 the one that was always, you know, the, the teacher's pet for Moses. I mean, this is that guy. So God tells him. So God says, alright, six days you're going to do that. And the seventh day, you're going to walk around seven times. On the seventh time, you've been quiet every other time. On the seventh time, you're going to yell, and the walls are just going to fall. And you can just imagine Joshua's like, what? Come again? Yeah. Why can't we do that the first day? We're not doing that the first day. Why can't we do it the second day? We're not doing the second day. Why can't we just walk around at one time on the seventh day and that be sufficient? Uh-uh. I want you to walk around it seven times. The first six times is silent. The seven times you're going to walk around it. After the seventh time, you're going to yell. The walls are going to fall. Well, how are they going to fall? It doesn't matter, Joshua. They're going to fall. Well, are they going to fall out? Are they going to fall in? Are they going to fall straight down? Are they going to disappear? What's going to happen? Joshua, you're not listening to me. Walk around the town like I told you to. Walk around the city of Jericho. Yell like I told you and I got it from here and you can just imagine Joshua like how am I supposed to explain this to 750,000 people because you've got 750,000 people they're going to ask 750 million different questions about how all of this is going to work and Joshua the only thing he's got for him is well uh, I don't know I don't know I don't know God, God, I, I don't know I don't know I don't know I don't know and you can imagine all those people like, you stink as a leader. You don't have anything figured out. Right? Where did the trumpets come in? trumpets. At the very last. At the very last. They yell and they blow the trumpet. Yes, ma'am. But Joshua didn't have to have all the answers. Because Joshua had the voice of God in his ear. And when he knew this is what God said to do, he didn't have to have the answers. And the people, the people, they want to have all the answers. All they need to worry about is, is Joshua listening to God? And if Joshua listens to God, that should be enough. But how many times do we have this take place 
in the church today. Nobody can get on board unless their answers or their questions are satisfied. And they're asking the wrong question. The question should not be, have all of my questions been satisfied and answered to my satisfactory? The question is, is leadership, are they listening to God? And is God speaking to leadership? And if the leadership is speaking to God, or at least listening to God, and God is speaking to leadership, then you know what? That frees up the leadership and the people from having to ask a whole bunch of questions. So you can just imagine the people. The people are there. Seven, I don't know how many thousands of thousands of thousands of people, but you can imagine Moses or Joshua getting up. Hear ye, hear ye. And he explains the plan and they're like, that plan stinks. That plan's terrible. That plan's not going to work. You're telling me that we've been doing this for six days and on the seventh day we're just going to... And then poof, it's going to go. they've seen God work so many times in so many miraculous ways. Of course they have questions, but then in your mind, you're like, but God has done this, and God has done this. And we get, it's obvious that God is speaking to Joshua. It's obvious Joshua is listening. So, there's some of that, like, we can draw from what God has already done. You would think. Well, they just crossed the Jordan. I mean, yeah. Yes, right. but they crossed the Red Sea, and three days later, they're grumbling about water. Yeah, but this is the new generation. And I will go. I will go to a preaching conference, and I will leave. They're all under twenty. They're all. They're, <laughs> no, they're all under sixty. Uh, I mean, but we will go. Like, like I've seen. I've seen churches. You go through a set of revival meetings, and everybody is just pumped up, tuned up, just fired up, ready to go. And you give it a couple Sundays, and. We've gotten over it. So yes, you would think. It's like, hey, they just saw God do all these things. And yet, even in our lives today, we struggle with that. We know that God's been faithful here, 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 and here. And then yet, we look and we're like, I don't know if He's going to be faithful next time. He's been faithful every other time, but I don't know if He's going to be faithful the next time. And, And that's a danger, right? And that's a danger. And what it comes down to is, there's one voice that matters. And it's not just God speaking to Moses. It's the people being willing to listen to the voice of God. Now, where do we get the voice of God at today? The Word. Right? The Holy Spirit speaks to us, but then the the primary way that we then hear the Word of the Lord to us is through God's Word. So it's not that in the Catholic sense you had to go to church and it was the priest that then gave you the Word of God. No, 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 no. Because the veil has been torn, we now have direct access. So every single one of us in this room, you want to hear God's Word to you, you open the Bible and you read the Bible. And yet, the Bible is often the most neglected piece of literature that we have in our possession. We just don't know the Bible. We're just not familiar with the Bible. So, lesson number one, Lesson number one, leaders are led. Lesson number two, there only one voice matters. And then, last place, last place, Judges chapter two. Judges chapter two. So, uh, Joshua takes them in. They don't complete the conquest. Most of the way through the conquest, leave some of it to them to finish up, finish up later. Talks about in Joshua chapter 4, 24, about the death of Joshua. But then in Judges chapter 2, it also um, talks about the death of Joshua. And here's how it describes it in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people of Israel, or dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old, and they buried him within the boundaries of inheritance in Timnah-Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Here's what I want you to think about. Verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. It is such a disappointing and such a heartbreaking verse when it talks about the fact that you have Joshua and all the generation that he led, him, Caleb, and all the ones that were below him, all of those people, they served God all of their days. Why? Because they were faithful to God. And yet after them, another generation arose that did not serve God. The lesson that I take from there in Judges 2 or even Joshua 24 is that everyone has some level of influence. 
Every single one of us in this room has some level of influence. You think back to the influence that Joshua had. It said that he and all the elders that served with him, they led the people to serve the Lord all of their days. They had an influence over the people. Wait, what does that mean? That, that means that there's nobody in this room that is a nobody. There's no such thing as you saying, I have no place to serve. I have nothing to do. Every spring, every single person has influence in one form or another. And here in the generation of Joshua, because they exercise their influence for the faithfulness and obedience to God, that whole generation served God. And then after that, there was a generation that grew up that was not faithful to God. What does that mean? That means there's a breakdown somewhere. We had one generation that didn't hand the faith off to the next generation. That you had one generation that did not teach the next generation how to worship and pursue after God. You had one generation that had forgotten to then lead the next generation to fear and to worship after God. So that is a heavy responsibility on us to think about what are we going to do to influence the next generation. And here's where I'm challenged because I'm fully content with letting other people handle the next generational influence. And yet every single one of us in this room has a responsibility to influence the next generation for the things of God. Now that's a struggle. And that's that and that is constantly something that we are always having to 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 discern the right way we should go. But we have an opportunity and we have a responsibility to be an influence for the next generation. So we see where Joshua, he and his generation, they had it figured out, they served God, but then there's a next generation that did not know God. And then you get through the rest of the pages of Judges and you see this cycle. You, they, you see them get in trouble and they start being oppressed and persecuted. Oh God, we're sorry, we didn't mean it, we won't do it again. God sends a redemption, God sends some type of a judge to save them. Oh, there's a revival. Oh, oh, we love Jesus. And then they forget about Jesus. But no, they don't love Jesus. They love God. Jesus is coming. They love God. And uh, all of a sudden they forget. They get wayward. They get rebellion. They get under persecution. They get under chastisement and, and oppression from the people. Oh, God, we're sorry. We didn't mean to do it. We shouldn't have done it. God sends salvation or God sends uh, not a savior, but a judge or some type, somebody to get them out of the mess they're in. And it's a cycle. It's a cycle. It's a cycle. It's a cycle. 12, 13, 14 judges come and go leading the people through the cycle. Why? Because you had a people that were not um, recognizing the influence they had to lead other people to obedience and faithfulness to God. So we need to be aware. Every single one in this room has an influence. The question is what we do with their influence. So there's some lessons. There's some lessons that Joshua then teaches us. Other lessons that you thought about that I missed? So that's when the judges came along the scene. So after Joshua died, there wasn't another person that God appointed to lead the people of Israel. Primarily because now they had they had divided up the land of Israel. So it was all in their allotments. There was a, the allotments that was handed on the east side of the Jordan. Then there was all the allotments that were given on the west side of Jordan. And so at the end, in Joshua 22, 23, and 24, Joshua says, okay, there's still some more conquests to do. So you need to go in there, finish driving out the ites, all the, all the ites that were in there, finish driving them out and taking possession of your land. So that's how Joshua 24 ends with his sign of saying, hey, everybody come in here. One, two, three, break. And they were all supposed to go out their inheritance, take their inheritance, serve God and be faithful to God. You get to Joshua, or Judges chapter 1 and you see where this person goes up, doesn't drive them out. This person goes up, doesn't kick them all out. This person, they start dabbling in secretism, idolatry. They don't do everything that God had told them to and that's where then you start having all these pagan influences coming in and these godless influences then bringing that oppression and persecution into their lives. And so that's when you start seeing these judges rising up. So you get like uh, Othniel or Othniel in chapter 3 of Judges. You get Ehud, the left-handed dude in Judges chapter 3. You get Shamgar in Judges chapter 3 and that's where that cycle starts of uh, because they would not drive out the pagan idolatry from their midst. Why does it just take a few people to mess up 
You're right. Yes, ma'am. Just one bad apple in the barrel. He reduced the covenant. So when you start talking about the generational thing, that's where my brain went. If he reduced the covenant, and it's very specific in there about how he reads all of those things to everyone. I guess that's paraphrased, but uh, there's not, it says a verse, where am I? Chapter 8, verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, with the littles, and the strangers who were living among them. That's right. So you get in Exodus Leviticus where God gives them the law. They get to number 13. That whole generation rebels. Then that whole generation dies out. They come back to the brink of the promised land. And that's where you get the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is just the second giving of the law is what it means, the word. And that is where Moses then gets all that next generation and says, Alright, you weren't of age and you weren't aware of what's going on when we were down here in Mount Sinai the first time. So he gives this whole next generation the word and says, alright, this is what you're supposed to do and this is what God's law is. <clears throat> That's why I think it's in Deuteronomy chapter 5 you get the second giving of the Ten Commandments where Moses retells it. Then, once they get into the promised land, Joshua then renews it. Chapter 8, he tells them, hey, this is what God expects. This is what God demands. And then you get down to Joshua chapter 24, and he calls them in. And he says, alright, we're getting ready to go back to your all your allotment, all your inheritance. Let me remind you, this is the covenant that God has made with you. And everybody's like, yes sir, we will do it. Yes sir. And Joshua's like, don't mess with God. He's not going to play games. They're like, oh no, we're going we're gonna to do it right. And then chapter 24 into Judges chapter 2, you see where the people are like, God who? And starts the... So that starts the breakdown. Starts the breakdown and starts the spiral. Yes, ma'am. more there. So many good stories about Joshua. So many good leadership lessons about Joshua. So much cool stuff about Joshua. You would not waste your time if you sat down this evening and read, started reading. You could read all of it tonight, but you would not waste your time reading through the book of Joshua and just reading about how God worked. And you will see, yes, Joshua is a main figure. But Joshua isn't the figure. The figure is God. And how God uses one man to lead a people. And if you'll read through there and you think, okay, let me read it as if I'm Joshua. And you'll see it through one lens as if I'm Joshua. And then go back and reread the book of Joshua through the lens of just one of the people being led. I think it's fascinating to think about, okay, so you're just, you know, out of 750,000 people, you're number 712,542, right? You're just another common person, and you're just another person getting the, well, not newspaper anymore, but you're getting your alerts, your push alerts on your phone every morning when you get up in your tent. You know, this is what's going on, this is what's happening, you know, and you're just thinking, I don't understand anything that is taking place. I mean, just the faith on their part, to be led, the faith on Joshua's part, to lead, it's, it requires both. Joshua, Joshua would not have conquered the promised land by himself. The people would not have conquered the promised land without the leadership of God. Both are needed. And today, both are still needed. People in the church, everybody has a place to has a place to serve. And it's like my place does not matter. Your place does matter. Because everybody has a place to serve in the kingdom of God. So that's Joshua. We will look at Samuel. Uh, next time, maybe next Wednesday, Lord willing, we'll be on Samuel. So if you want to look ahead, a uh, good place to start would be First and Second Samuel if you want to. Uh, it would be a good place if you want to cheat. Um, but we'll be in on um, the prophet and the judge of Samuel. He was the last judge. So you get to Judges chapter 2 and you see the cycle of the judges that are starting. Samuel is the last judge. So Othniel was the first judge recorded in Scripture. Samuel is the last judge before the people get their first king and who was the first
king. Saul, right? So you kind of, Judges chapter 2, you see Othniel as the first judge, and then we'll see next week Samuel as the last judge. So that is taking place. We got Ben's breakfast coming up this Saturday at 8 a.m. Hope you'll come and be a part of that. And then, of course, we got Sunday church coming up. And so just an opportunity for you to serve wherever you'd like to serve at. So let's pray, and uh, we will be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for Joshua. We thank you for the example that we have of Joshua. Father, we are so grateful that not only you lead us, but God, that you use people to lead us. And God, may we be faithful and obedient, even when it doesn't make sense, and even when we don't understand it, and even when we have doubts and are skeptical. Father, may we be faithful to you. May we follow you wherever you might lead us. Father, bring us back this coming Sunday as we gather back in your place and ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.